uh, strategic posture for spiritual power, what I'd like to do is start with a couple of video clips as we look at these. Now, watch, this guy here is, is following a tree over here. He's got his chainsaw right over here. And watch coming down the road comes this guy on a bicycle. Wow, watch it again. Look at that. One more time. Here it comes. Look how close that came. You know, uh, this video is a reminder to us that the position is important. Uh, being in the right position can mean the difference between disaster and safety. I want to show you one more, one more uh, real quick little video clip that illustrates the same thing. And uh, watch this. See this cat? This cat's got a chipmunk. Now watch this. There goes the chipmunk trying to get away. Now watch. <laughs> Where'd he go? Where'd he go? <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> Where'd he go? Well, well, we all like animal pictures, but you know, that is, a, that is such, a, such a great illustration of the point I'm trying to make, that position can mean the difference between disaster and safety. Position or posture is known to have a definite impact on our um, physical health. As we think about posture and physical health, um, notice that the poor posture can contribute to pelvic pain, headaches, back pain, low self-esteem, fatigue, and sleep issues, hip, knee, and ankle pain, digestive problems, stress, and arthritis. How many of you had a mother who told you, stand up straight or don't slouch, right? So we all know the importance of physical posture. But there's something else that's important for us, and what I really want to talk about is what we might term spiritual posture. Spiritual posture can likewise lead to a number of problems. And threats to our spiritual well-being abound as believers. Threats to our spiritual well-being are all around us in society. We're often not even aware of them, but it's almost like we've been, been cast into a pool and we're just surrounded by this, this uh, uh, water the, and, and the influences that are around us in our society and culture that pose threats to us that oftentimes we're not aware of. Uh, it is said, and I think this rightly sums up a, a tremendous principle in the Bible, that we are in the world, but not of the world. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So we are in the world, but we're supposed as Christians not to be of the world. However, being immersed in the world, we run the risk of becoming contaminated by the world. I want to kind of think about this the spiritual contamination and what we might do to inoculate ourselves against us, against it. I think of this sometimes when I fly uh, commercially on a, on a commercial airplane. Um, 
you know, when you're, when you're flying on an airliner, you're shut up in this metal tube for hours, sharing the same air with dozens or maybe even hundreds of other people. What's the likelihood of contamination from that kind of an environment? Well, you know, this is exactly why so many people get sick when they travel. Um, and, and so the threat of physical uh, contamination is there because of the environment that you're submitted to. Or, or think about the kindergarten school teacher shut up in a classroom with 20 or 30 kindergarten age kids all with their runny noses and their coughs and uh, needing constantly to come in contact with that teacher throughout the day. Uh, what, what hope does she have, right? And so uh, those who, who teach little children, they, they get sick a lot the first few years and then after they've been teaching for years, they develop immunities uh, to those kinds of things. Well, so we know what it's like to be exposed to contaminants in our atmosphere physically, think with me about the spiritual contaminants that surround us. And think about ourselves being immersed in a culture, in a society that poses a threat to the way that God would like to work in our lives. The Apostle Paul was very much aware of the threat of spiritual contamination. And he wrote about the spiritual dangers when he wrote to the church in Corinth. What I'd like to do with our time this morning is turn our attention to the book of 2 Corinthians and uh, look at the message that Paul had for the church in Corinth. Um, thinking about 1 and 2 Corinthians, a good friend of mine humorously refers to 1 and 2 Corinthians as 1 and 2 Californians. <laughs> and he's really not very far off the mark with that idea. Ancient Corinth and modern California share a lot in common. Uh, ancient Corinth, like California, was a modern city in its day. It was on the west coast, and it was an important shipping location. Both Corinth and California were known for immorality. Corinth was known to be forward-thinking and in touch with modern ideas, very progressive, and so I think the parallels between Corinth and California are rather obvious, aren't they? The church that was in Corinth was subject to the dangers of being influenced by the surrounding godless culture. And let me just ask you this question. Do you think it's possible that churches in California today are likewise facing the problem of being influenced by California's godless culture? Well, obviously, that's a rhetorical question, right? And the answer is pretty obvious. Well, when the apostle wrote to the church in Corinth about the spiritual dangers facing that church, he focused on three postures that we are to assume. And those three postures are going to form really the backbone or the structure of my message this morning. The first posture comes from 2 Corinthians 1.24. In your faith, you're standing firm. And this posture is that of standing, stand in faith. And we're going to look, take a look at that in just a moment. The second posture that he talks about is found in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, which says we walk by faith. So the first posture is standing, the second is walking. We walk by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And then the third one I'd like to look at comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, where it says... 
just as you abound in everything in faith. And this talks about abounding in faith. So we have standing in faith, walking by faith, and abounding in faith as three spiritual postures that are intended to provide us with, I think, an inoculation as believers against the spiritual threats that surround us in our society. And that's what I want to develop as we go through these passages this morning. So I want to start now, let me back up to this one here, uh, with the first one, standing, uh, that is standing in faith. The posture of standing has to do with, with standing firm in the face of opposition. And I want, to, I want to take a look at this verse in its context. I think that's always important. And the passage begins here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 15, where Paul wrote this. In this confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. Background is simply this. Paul had promised the church in Corinth that he would visit them twice on his agenda. He had a traveling agenda. And so this is the background. He was going to several places. He was going further north up into Macedonia. He had some business he was taking care of. But he says in verse 15, um, I intended to come first to you so that you might twice receive a blessing, that is to pass your way into Macedonia, and then again from Macedonia to come to you, and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating what I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? So that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. Why is he saying these things? Okay, here's what happened. Paul had his itinerary. He had Corinth on his itinerary. He had Macedonia on his itinerary. And then Corinth the second time. Something happened and interrupted his plans. And he was not able to make it the second time to Corinth. Well, you can imagine if you were a church and you had a meeting scheduled with the Apostle Paul, would you be disappointed if he didn't make it? Of course. And the church in Corinth was disappointed. There were, in fact, false teachers in the area who took advantage of this situation. And much of the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is written to try to counter the arguments of these false teachers. And the first issue that Paul has to deal with was the fact that the false teachers <clears throat> were accusing Paul of being untrustworthy. They said, look, if he can't even keep his travel agenda with you, how can you trust anything else that he says? And that's the issue here. So let's pick this up now in verse 19. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, he was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are of the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. So the, the believers in Corinth had these false teachers that were trying to discredit Paul by his vacillating schedule. 
Paul says, look, God had a perfectly good reason for it, and the important thing is the message about Christ. Because even though with me, my schedule might change, Christ doesn't change. In him, everything is yes and amen. That's his message. So he says, I thank God that you are standing firm. They had stood firm in the face of these false teachers. Now let's think about the spiritual posture for a few moments. Because it's interesting to me how many times in the New Testament the imagery of standing is used in connection with standing in the face of false teaching. Back here. So in first or in Ephesians chapter six, the believer is exhorted to take the whole armor of God. And there the Christian is pictured as a soldier who takes his defensive stand against satanic threats. Ephesians 6 verse 11 says, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to what? To stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And in verse 13 of that same passage in Ephesians 6, it says, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about the doctrine of the resurrection, which other false teachers had infiltrated the church at Corinth and were trying to deny the truth of the resurrection. And he says this in verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and listen, in which also you stand. You stand. So when it comes to the truth of the Scriptures, to the truth of Christian teaching and doctrine, we are encouraged to take a firm stand. Romans 5.2 says, through whom also we've obtained our inheritance by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. The Corinthian church had been infiltrated by false teachers who basically were attempting to discredit Paul's teaching and his apostolic authority. And Paul commends them in verse 24 of this first passage for the fact that they had taken a firm stand in the face of these false teachers. So the whole idea uh, behind this posture of standing then is taking a firm stand in resistance to what is false. Um, the fact that the false teachers had attempted to discredit Paul as an authentic apostle of Christ is one thing. Um, it interests me that what they tried to do was to discredit the man in order to discredit the message. What Paul did was he redirected their attention to the message. And he said, in Christ, everything is yes and amen. Keep focused on the message. Yes, the messenger may be a vessel of clay. The messenger may let you down and disappoint you at times. But the message, the truth of the Scripture is what we need to look at, what we need to focus on, and stand firm in that relationship. Um, but I want to I think with you about the challenge that faces us. Now, we don't have the Apostle Paul with us any longer. Um, we don't have apostles in the church today. But there are false teachers who are still bringing into doubt, trying to cast aspersion upon the authority of the Word of God. 
And I think that we're seeing an increase in these days. And it's no surprise that we're seeing an increase because we were cautioned in 1 Timothy 4.1 that the Spirit speaks expressly, expressly that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Do you think that we're living in those later times today? I don't think you could possibly be aware of half of the things that are going on in the world today that we read about and hear about on a daily occurrence and not come to the conclusion that we're living in the latter times. There are some exciting things about these latter times, but there are also some cautions. In the latter times, there would be an increase and an abundance of false teachings. And just as the Corinthians took a bold stand to confront the false teachings of their own day, you and I must take a courageous stand to be unmovable in the face of false teachings today where the Word of God is being discredited. And we could go on for hours probably talking about the many, many false doctrines that the church faces today. I just want to mention three or four of them to you that, um, that are, are prominent today. Number one, the prosperity gospel. And you could turn on the television set on a Sunday morning and watch any number of TV preachers that are promoting what we call the prosperity gospel. Basically, it is a form of what's called realized eschatology or kingdom now theology. The idea that the kingdom has come now and if the kingdom is here now, then we must be experiencing the power of the kingdom, which would include prosperity. Well, it's true that the Bible says that when the messianic kingdom arrives at the second coming of Christ, it will be a time of prosperity and peace and righteousness. But friends, we're not in the kingdom right now. The kingdom is coming, and it's coming with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are living in a gospel age right now. We will have a place to play in the kingdom and an important place to, pr a place to play in that kingdom. And I'd love to develop that theme with you, and we may do that some other time. You'll just have to come take my class at Shasta Bible College. And we can, we, we can uh, do that and thrill in those thoughts. But uh, this is not the kingdom right now. The idea that this is the kingdom right now is an idea that became prominent in about the third century, fourth century of the church and held sway through the Middle Ages and never was let loose of by some uh, divisions of Christianity. But the prosperity gospel is really a form of that amillennial teaching. Um, another uh, false teaching is closely related to the prosperity gospel is what's known as the New Apostolic Reformation. I don't know if you know of it by this name or not. Some of you might. But we have a representation of this right here in the Reading area very strongly. In fact, Reading has been put on the map globally because of one group that is strongly promoting the New Apostolic Reformation. And it's the idea that if we're a church, if we're a genuine church, we have to ex be experiencing all the signs and the wonders and the miracles that were done by the apostles. We should be seeing those today. Rather than recognizing the apostles served as a foundational movement in the early days of the church, and we've moved on, we have a complete scripture, and our primary responsibility now is to make known the scriptures, to make Jesus Christ known, to invite people to come and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and be saved and enter the family of God and have an eternal hope. This is the hope that we hold out to a lost and dying world. 
Well, we don't need gold dust flying down from the rafters or angels' feathers or any of these other uh, things that people try to promote today. But uh, we need to take a firm stand for the truth of the gospel. Um, just a couple of other things here. Uh, replacement theology is another false doctrine that is uh, finding rampant acceptance. The replacement theology is the teaching that the church has finally, fully, and completely replaced Israel as the people of God. This again is an idea, a teaching that became prominent in the church around the fourth century and held sway throughout the Middle Ages and on into our present times. Uh, folks, I want to tell you something. God made an everlasting and eternal promise to the nation of Israel, to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his promise is as good as his character. God's character is at stake, and if people are trying to say that God will not fulfill his covenant obligations to the nation of Israel, they are casting aspersion upon the trustworthiness of God. I'll tell you this, if God will not keep his promises to the nation of Israel, what right do I have or you have to assume that he will keep his promises to you or to me? He will keep those promises because he is faithful to his word, and he never, ever disappoints. Closer related to replacement theology, but you might think of it as the extreme opposite, is another interesting teaching that we're finding even here in the Reading area known as the Torah Observant Messianic Movement. And here a number of congregations are coming together, uh, and, and these folks love God. I don't doubt, doubt that for a moment. Even many of those who hold to replacement theology oftentimes are, are lovers of Jesus Christ and we want to love the brethren, but at the same time, we want to firmly oppose the false teaching. But Torah observant messianism uh, teaches that, uh, that as Christians, we must observe the eternal character of the Torah, the law of Moses. And so we should not meet on Sunday, we should be meeting on Saturday. We should be observing the Sabbath. We should be observing the dietary laws of the Old Testament. We should be observing the feasts of Israel and all these other things. It's really just another form of replacement theology. It's saying that not the church has replaced Israel, but almost like the Israel, that Israel has replaced the church. And it's almost the flip side of what we find in replacement theology. And it totally misunderstands uh, the, the role that the law of Moses played in the outworking of God's program and it totally misunderstands the character and the nature of this present age. But we are not under the law. Uh, the Torah, the law of Moses, was God's covenant that he made with the nation of Israel. And that covenant is in place with the nation of Israel, but God never made that covenant with the church. So, enough said about that. I just want to mention one other false teaching. Well, like I said, we could go on and on and on, but universalism... You know, many dear Christian folks have such a heart of compassion and love, they cannot bear the thought that anyone would spend eternity in hell. And I share that compassionate thought. Honestly, I do. It grieves me that anybody would spend eternity in hell. And yet, the scriptures are very clear that God has granted us an opportunity to respond to his gracious message, his gracious offer of eternal life. He extends his hand of mercy, but if man rejects the offer of forgiveness and pardon in this life, there is an eternity in separation from God. 
and it is real. It is very, very real. Um, if it were up to me to choose which doctrines I would like to believe, I'll admit I would like to believe in universalism. I would like to believe that unsaved folks that I know and love, some of them relatives of mine, would be forever in heaven. I would like to believe that, and I hope that they will be. But there is only one way, and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we need to stand firm in the face of these false doctrines that are abounding. And this is the first spiritual posture that we need to adopt. But there are two others, and I want to move on to the second spiritual posture, and that's the posture of walking. And over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, there's a verse that's probably very familiar to many of you here. You may have memorized this verse. It's one of my favorite in all the Bible. It says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And once again, I'd like to look at this verse in its context and be very careful that we are uh, understanding this as it was given in the Scriptures. Paul writes this in first, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For we know that if our earthly tent, which is this house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. What's he talking about here? What is this earthly tent, our present house? He's talking about our bodies, our physical bodies. And he's talking about the fact that we have a body in heaven, a resurrection body that's preserved for us. Verse 2 says, For indeed in this house we groan. I can identify with that. You ever groan in your body? You got aches, you got pains. Did you have a hard time pulling yourself out of bed this morning? Um, yeah. Um, some of you folks are younger and you haven't gotten there yet. Um, but you know what? Uh, it's coming. That's the good news. It's coming. Those aches and pains, the sore shoulders, the knees, the hips, <clears throat> we groan. We groan. Actually, I think Paul has something else in mind, but the groaning of our physical body is a reminder to us of why our bodies groan. And he adds this in verse 2, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, we are in this tent. While we're in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up in life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We have good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body than to be at home with the Lord. Amen? Yeah, I'm looking for that day. So this is the context in which he makes the statement, we walk by faith, faith, not by sight. It's in anticipation of the resurrection body. It's in anticipation of that coming day when Christ will call us home to the Father's house and clothe us with that resurrection body. And, uh, you know, the Bible often uses the metaphor of walking to be a depiction of the Christian life, of our conduct, the way we live out our lives each and every day, as it does here. We walk by faith, not by sight. In Ephesians 1.4, it says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk 
in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Ephesians 4.17, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Ephesians 5, verse 15, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. And Colossians 1.10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is the second spiritual posture that is recommended to us to avoid infection from the surrounding culture. It's to walk, to walk by faith, not by sight. But it's a walking that's an anticipation of a goal. The goal is the coming of the Lord to catch us up to the Father's house, to make us like him. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul had been speaking about the resurrection body. Our current walk is often distracted, distracted by the desires that are attached to our earthly body. And when Paul talked about our bodies groaning, I think rather than the aches and the pains, he really was talking about the groaning that we have because of the tendencies of our flesh. Um, the desires for things like the hunger for rich foods, the wanting of wealth and ease, the craving of the adoration and praise of people. These are all the things that are associated with the flesh. The deeds of the flesh, in fact, are detailed for us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are these, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, these are things that our flesh longs for, that our flesh craves, even though we've been born again, even though we've been saved. We have not yet attained the goal of the resurrection. As long as this flesh clings to us, we still have these cravings. We all do. And that's why we groan. We groan while we're in this flesh. How do we keep from being distracted by these desires? The solution is quite simple. It's because we're in a walk, and that walk has a goal, a goal in mind. We keep from being distracted by these things by keeping our eyes fixed on the goal, the resurrection, the rapture, the judgment seat of Christ, meaningful and satisfying service in the coming kingdom. In many churches today, there has sadly been a loss of interest in preaching about the second coming. This is often due to the mistaken impression that those interested in prophecy are only interested in pointless speculation about future events. But this is not the case at all. The Bible has much to say about the future, and it is not offered as pointless speculation. Rather, the believers focus on the future coming of the Lord and our gathering up to him at the rapture is to serve as a major motivation to godly living in the present. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 as he talks about this same idea. He says that I might know him and what? The power of his resurrection 
and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. What's he talking about? He's talking about the longing for that resurrection body. Verse 11, in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. And it's not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I might lay hold of that for which I've laid, been laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal. I'm walking with a purpose in mind for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And friends, I think that upward call is nothing other than the call that Jesus will issue at the rapture. It's an upward call. He's going to say, come on up. Come on up. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trump, trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised incorruptible and will be changed. Well, the Apostle John has the same kind of anticipation in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and I trust that we are, if we trusted Jesus as our Savior. We are the children of God. It has not yet appeared what we will be. And I'm glad for that as I look at myself and I look at the rest of us. I'm glad this is not what we're going to be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him does what? Purifies himself just as he is pure. This is why we preach the second coming. It's not for needless, pointless speculation, but it's the motivation, it's the goal that we have in mind. It's the view that we have as we walk. This next picture, I think, uh, will illustrate well what I'm getting at here. And you've all heard this, this illustration before, but you know, uh, when a farmer is plowing in his field, now they use tractors, but I like this picture of the horses. If you're plowing and you're looking down at the ground that you're working, if you're looking at your feet, if you're looking at the dirt and the mud that you're walking in, what's, gonna, what's your furrow going to be? Huh? It, it's going to be like this. How do you get a straight furrow? You don't look at where you're walking. You don't keep your eyes on the dirt and the mud and the filth. You pick a point out there beyond the pasture and you keep your eyes fixed on that and you plow a straight furrow. That's the Christian walk. That's the Christian life. And I fear that in these churches that have forsaken a preaching and a teaching about the second coming, the folks are focused more on where they are, who they are, what they're like. And I see it reflected sadly in... in in much of the uh, modern songs that tend to wallow in, almost in self-pity. Woe is me, I'm so horrible, I'm so bad, I'm so unworthy. But folks, keep your eyes fixed on the coming of the Lord. We're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's where our rewards come, and we're going to have meaningful, fruitful, fulfilling service in the kingdom as a result of those rewards. We stand. We stand against false teaching. We walk. We walk with purpose, with determination, with our eyes fixed on a goal. I want to just talk about one final posture, and it's such an interesting one. We read about it here in 2 Corinthians 8, 7, and he says here, you abound in faith. You abound in faith. Such an interesting word. It occurs in this passage 
in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Okay, now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given the churches of Macedonia, that in the great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, their deep poverty, overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Let me just stop here because this sets the stage. And I don't think I'll bother to read the rest of the passage in the interest of time. But Paul had been going about the churches of Macedonia, taking up a collection, an offering, for the poor saints in Judea. Because many of them, when they trusted Christ, had lost their jobs, had been disowned by their families, and they were suffering. So Paul was taking up this offering, and he was going to come to Corinth to take an offering too. And he uses the churches of Macedonia as an evidence of an example of what abounding love should be. And so he says in verse 7, but just as you abound in everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and all earnestness and in the love we inspire in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also, in this offering that he was taking up. So I, I want to think about this, this word abound because it's such an interesting word. Um, the word abound means to exceed or to go beyond the goal. And I like this picture because this picture is a, 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 a picture of a military jet that's doing what? It's breaking that sound barrier. And as it breaks that sound barrier, you have this tremendous phenomenon that takes place with the, the, uh, the moisture and the air condensing all around it, this interesting pattern. But it's such a dramatic picture of that breaking the sound barrier. I remember um, they used to talk about the sound barrier as a barrier that couldn't be broken. Mankind couldn't get beyond it. And when they finally broke the sound barrier, it was like a, a, a sudden awareness of mankind that this was something we could get past. Well, the word abound has that idea of going past, exceeding, going beyond a barrier. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapters uh, 8 and 9, Paul was urging the Corinthians to be generous in their giving towards the support of poor saints in Judea. And this generous giving would be an expression of their Christian love. I'm just going to move ahead. I'm not going to spend time on that slide. But I want to, I want to just tell you that what he's talking about here is a, a boundary that should not inhibit us. It's the boundary of love. If sound was a barrier that could be broken by a military jet, any limitation to love is a boundary that the Christian needs to break. Listen to this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, and 10. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. And listen to this last part. But we urge you, brethren, to excel. That's the same word as we had, abound, to excel, to abound. You know, in life, there are some boundaries that we shouldn't go beyond. Uh, if you see a sign like this, warning, do not enter, you better obey that one. And there are some boundaries that God sets for us that were intended not to go beyond. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not commit adultery. 
You know, these are boundaries that God has set. But there is one boundary that we intend to surpass, to go beyond. Uh, when it comes to love, there is no boundary that should limit our activity. The greatest love of all was the love of God that was displayed in Christ's crucifixion. It was the love of an eternal God who had an infinite love for a sinful fallen mankind that had rebelled against him. And he sent his only begotten son to die for the very ones who hated him, who rebelled against him, who cast aspersion on his name. That's the only example for us. And when Paul urged the Corinthians to abound in this love, he's saying, cross all boundaries when it comes to exhibiting love. Didn't Jesus say, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. Now, folks, I want to I just tell you this. I want you to listen to this. Our country is being torn apart by political sectarian differences today. These political aspirations often lead both sides, both liberals and conservatives, to engage in hateful, hurtful language and actions. And brethren, I believe it's a mistake for Christians to be caught up in this kind of fervor. Now, don't get me wrong. Please don't misunderstand me. I think we need to make a stand for righteousness. I think we need to promote what is right and good and holy in culture and society. But we need to make a stand for righteousness in a way that speaks the truth in love. And I am afraid that many Christians are losing their Christian testimony in their fervor for what they believe is politically correct. There's a right way to go about this. But we are to abound in love. Well, as we finish up here this morning, let me just say that we are a lot like the Corinthians. My friend was probably right on target by referring to First and Second Corinthians as First and Second Californians. The Corinthian Christians were in danger of losing their spiritual effectiveness because they were adopting the standards of the Corinthian society around them. How much of Californian society's standards have you and I accepted into our own form of Christianity? That's an interesting question worth pondering. The book of 2 Corinthians urges on us three spiritual postures to protect us from infection by society's standards. Stand in faith, stand against the false teachings that abound around us, make a firm stand. Walk by faith, keeping your eyes firmly fixed on that goal. Christ is coming, and we will appear shortly before him to give an account of all that we've done in our lives and abound in faith. Don't worry about crossing those boundaries when it comes to displaying the love of God in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these moments to spend in the Word. Now impress upon our hearts this message. And Lord, help us to stand, to walk, to abound to the glory of God and to the praise of Jesus Christ. Amen.